This is Planted, a podcast that encourages us to be rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ and established in the faith. In today's discussion on Israel, we discuss patterns in the narrative of Scripture that helps us keep in mind the covenant relationship that God wants with His people. Good day, everyone. This is Pastor Matt Grimm. I'm here once again with Thad Keenel as we present to you the Planted Podcast. How are you doing today, Thad? I'm doing good. You know, I'm looking forward to the episode today. We've been talking about Israel, yep. and we've been talking about the name of Israel. Right. We've been talking about the country of Israel. Um, all these things are kind of coming together, and this is such a, a big topic. You've got me heading down several roads, and I'm not sure how to juggle them all. So right. what, what do you suggest uh, for the listener when you're starting to feel overwhelmed on a topic like right. this? Well, one, I want to hope and encourage you to hang with us. The, the other thing I, I would say is Continue to look at the scriptures. I mean, even like last time, we we you know probably spent a little more time than I planned, you know, debating a question about whether Israel's supposed to go up the mountain or not. But right. but that's part of the I think the purpose of the scriptures and even the way that they're written is we're supposed to wrestle with them, we're supposed to meditate on them, we're supposed to ask questions. And uh, part of my whole strategy in spending as much time in the narrative as we are as it concerns Israel is so that we try to answer the question of who is Israel um, based on the big narrative scope as well as the individual passages. Because the individual passages and the promises and some of the descriptions of things that we want to see be answered in the New Testament or things that we want to help us give us a clue of who Israel is today, right, Sure. Uh, from a biblical perspective, right. is, is reliant upon the whole story. And and what's happening to Jacob and his family, okay, and what happened to um, Jacob's fathers <laughs> right before him are all there for a reason. And, and it's not just history. It is history, but it's told and given to us in a story for redemptive purposes to point us to how God is working all things out for his glory uh, through his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, and so I, I readily admit I come with that bias to the text because I've read the New Testament yeah. and I know what it tells me. And, 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 and basically it keeps pointing us to Jesus, to Jesus, to Jesus, to Jesus. And so... Um, and the New Testament, when it's talking about Jesus, it keeps pointing back... To Israel. To Israel in the Old Testament. <laughs> and, and so uh, if we don't right. have a somewhat of an understanding of the Old Testament, we're going we're gonna right. to miss out on some of the richness that is there yeah. for us. Yeah, and so and even as we were talking before we started recording the podcast today, you know, I I see Israel, and part of the reason we went back to you know Genesis is I see Israel, and I'm, I have many scholars and theologians who would back me up on this. It's not my original idea. Mm -hmm. Is that Israel is the corporate Adam? So you have Adam and Eve in the garden in the temple right, as we had talked about, and we have their fall, and then we have their ancestors and the outcomes of that, and then we have Noah and what happens with him after 
the, the kind of a first work of recreation in one sense we would say as in judgment upon sin and the crossing of of uh, transgressing of of God's ordered realms and, and purposes as well as a, as a second type fall before the flood and then the third being the Tower of Babel and all that being a part of the narrative thing that is leading to help us see why Israel needed to be created, why God made a promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and then Jacob's descendants, right? Mm-hmm. So that narrative scope becomes important because Israel, in that sense, is the corporate Adam, um, and God calls them to be, a, in, in some senses, or with the vision forward of being almost like the new Adam who's going to bring redemption, but they, what we're seeing and what we're going to talk about today is they fa- they fail, they fall too. They they don't live up to that. And so there's still one who's going to come from Israel, you know, who is the seed of the woman who is going to do all this. But there's this connection that that Israel plays this role that is communicating God's purposes and helping us see why a Messiah still has to come and why even in the midst of this narrative, there are these prophecies that we'll see somewhere down the future of this one who's going to accomplish these right. things. Right. So the the scope of God's plan, in beginning with, with Adam in the middle of the garden, is to be the image of God. Yeah. To have dominion over the earth right to multiply and to fill the earth right which garden kind of also sorry eden also has this temple imagery to it doesn't yeah. it because the temple is the place where god dwells and god is there right. in the garden with adam and eve and who are to guard and keep same language we have of the levites with regard to the tib- tabernacle right and so when that when that fails because of the eating you know, of the forbidden fruit um, then we take the next step and we see that decreation, recreation aspect that you've talked about before yeah. and how God is – it appears to us from the reader's perspective that God is doing an adjustment to the plan. But because this plan is e- is eternal, he's just showing us that there's a, another aspect of how the light's going to be brought into into the earth with with this order. And it's a very spiritual thing because the whole time man's going through this, we have this um, unseen realm, this angelic realm. We have the serpent in the garden, right? right. We have the gods of Egypt. We have the, the gods that we spoke of in the, the, the Genesis 6-4 account with yeah. you know all of that. And that goes all the way through until the serpent's head is crushed by the second Adam. Yeah, that's right. Right. And so... Um, but Israel the whole time, and including now in the New Testament, exist, mm-hmm. and there's a true aspect to that Israel and who that is. And so our goal, one of our goals anyways, um, in discovering this is it's it's much more than a nation. It's it's more about a particular people that are going to live in covenant with God. Right. And, and they're fulfilling a representative nature, just as Adam we would say is our federal head. We In covenant theology, we talk about the one who who acted on our behalf, right? Uh, and then and then we have Israel, who's coming to bring redemption, and then they're to act on behalf of the nations and to bring a blessing to the nations, right? And Abraham, right. Abraham Isaac, and Jacob, and then and their descendants. And then we see ultimately that's leading to the Messiah who does that and, and fulfills what everyone else before him do, isn't able to do. Right. You know, so, so what we have is this, this typology that's all along the way. I'm going to read this paragraph from... 
this book, The Pentateuch's Narrative by John H. Salehammer, and he's one of the theologians that I've read that that proposed back to the the our discussion last time about Exodus, whether they should go up or not, the whole issue of faith that they his view is that they did not act in faith by not going up. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think there's some that's debatable, but it's interesting. But here's what he says in terms of this narrative typology in which he thinks is part of the whole way, this intricate and um, beautiful way the Pentateuch has been written. He says, the Pentateuch is put together in such a way that one can discern relationships among its parts. Earlier events foreshadow and anticipate later events. Later events are written to remind the reader of past narratives. We've talked about that with even where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob traveled and the different places they stopped and worshiped, right? We see that pattern Mm -hmm. among that. So later events are written to remind the reader of past narratives. We have called this feature narrative typology. By means of this technique, the author develops central themes and continually draws them to the reader's attention. In the following sections, he's going to start discussing examples of this kind of typology, and he looks at how Genesis 12 um, verses 10 to 20 foreshadow the, the, the whole narrative of Genesis 41 to Exodus 12 uh, in terms of the going down into Egypt and, and so forth. And he talks about that some more. And then he, he talks about how the spread of sin in Genesis 1 to 11, those 11 chapters we just got done reviewing quickly, and the defilement of the camp in the, in the laws of Leviticus 11 to 16. Mm. Now, we're going to talk not going to take time to go through all that, but it's it's really interesting to, to see how he draws those connections here in terms of even in his thesis, a lot of times he even talks about how laws are interspersed within the narrative to help give reasons for why the laws exist in the first place due to the narrative scope of what's going on at the time. Sure. But I do want to read one little section out of this about Genesis 1 to 11, because I think it affirms what we've been talking about here. He says, one can see another example of narrative typology in the parallels between Genesis 1.11 and the arrangement of the cultic purity laws in Leviticus 11-16. The importance of Genesis 1-11 for the rest of the Pentateuch can be seen in the fact that its narrative structure provides a pattern by which the author often shapes subsequent Pentateuchal narratives. So not just the laws, but the narratives themselves, which is what we've been talking right, about right, here. Yeah. And that's why we want to look at Exodus 32 today, is because of that, it's part of that pattern and shaping. He said, thus the order and arrangement of the creation accounts in Genesis 1-2 to 2 exhibit the same pattern as the description of the building of the tabernacle in Exodus 25-31. to 31. So remember, that's what we ended our podcast last time. We were talking about the covenant renewal ceremony of Exodus 24, right? And it's following that in in chapters 25 to 31 that we have all the instructions of building the tabernacle, which again, the tabernacle in symbol and visual representation and, and even in the fact that that's who God goes in the land with them to eat, it's, it's a new Eden, you know, it's a new creation. It's a it's a new Eden type of account. Okay, right. And, and so, and both Eden and the Tabernacle are imageries of a, a greater heavenly reality. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right where God dwells, God right. dwells in the heavenly reality, and He wants to dwell on Earth with His people in the earthly reality. And He's showing ways in the Garden through the Tree of Life, and when walking with Him, and here with the the tabernacle, that he's wanting to claim the terrestrial space as 
to overlap in it's kind of like looking at them with the celestial one of those right? one of those paintings that's a mosaic and you're really, really close to it and yeah. you can you can see some of the parts really clear yeah um when you're up close but it's a, it's a segment right. but then as you back up the, the the broader picture starts to come into focus you know yeah. and so yeah. the more that you know about that broader image the the right. the, the bigger more realistic imagery you have of the yeah. God, of God's truth right so what's really interesting, one thing we didn't mention last week is that in between the the instructions and laws uh, that follow the Ten Commandments about um, just laws about dwelling together and how they're supposed to live together uh, in in Exodus uh, twenty, you know, they said laws about altars, about slaves, and um, you know restitution, all these different things, so a lot of social justice type things of right. how, how they're to live as as the people of God, to as they're to be his represent his name and how they live. At the end of 23, right before we have the covenant ceremony being confirmed in, in, in Exodus 24, we have this passage about the conquest of Canaan being promised to them and how they're going to take possession of the land. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it says... Behold, I sent an angel before you to guard your way and to bring you in the place that I've prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and, and I will take sickness away from you. And and he goes on to talk about more how it's going to be good for them in the land, Um and, and how they are not to make covenant with their gods, um, um, but but just to stay faithful to Yahweh. But this angel's going to go before them, and his name is in them, and they're to obey, because if they don't— Well, God's name is in the angel. The God's name is in the angel, right? Right. And so many would say that this is the angel of the Lord. This would potentially be a, a almost like a theophany, the a, a, another appearing of— an appearing of the second person, the Trinity, you know, potentially in, in all of this. Right. And the other um, context clue to that in verse 21 would be right just before it says that my name is in him. Mm-hmm. It says, don't be rebellious towards him for he will not pardon your transgression. Well, there's, there's only one that can pardon sins. Right. And so mm-hmm. if he's not doing it, th- that's even another shadow right. that it's, it's he, he could. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> so, it's it's pretty often. This isn't the only time that it speaks of the angel of the Lord, right. where it's Christ. I mean, we have got the the burning bush incident right. that, that takes place, right? And so there's there's some context clues that helps point us towards right. that second person of the Trinity, kind of in a right. That's the theophany form that you're talking about, right. right? And so I bring all this up because what we see here is the desire of God. We've been talking about this all along. The desire of God to be with his people and dwell with his people, and he's go in and he's going to bring victory with them because he's going to be with them. So you have this intimacy, right, that's here, that, that he's, he's a closeness of, of the presence of God with the people and in going into the land. 
So I just want us to file that in our little filing cabinet because when we get after Exodus 32, we're gonna this is gonna come up again. Okay. All right. But but that's but that it, it's it's that's told them before they go in and and confirm the covenant. Right. It's it's following this. They confirm the covenant. They spring. They go up. They they get the blood sprinkled on them. The 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 seventy go up and have the meal with God and all that, which we we referenced last week. Right. And so. Um, so at the end of 24, it says, um, uh, then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire. And we've talked about all that imagery before. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, okay? So now Moses kind of, it's almost like he's going into the, you know, the holy of holies. And so, or, you know, he's entering in, you know, closer, and, and he's, and he's going to be meeting with God, mm-hmm. okay? Now, while this is happening, um, then following that, he gets all these laws about the tabernacle, okay? So he has the, basically all the instructions for the tabernacle follow this, up until we get to verse uh, till till chapter thirty two, okay, and so at verse eighteen of chapter thirty one, and he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone written on the finger of God. Okay, so while he's up there, okay, he still hasn't come down yet. We have the people getting concerned. Okay, what you know? Why hasn't Moses come down? They saw that he's not come down in chapter thirty two. They gather together with Aaron and say to him, Up, make us gods who will sh- who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. All right. So oh. what's going on here? I I used to read this as, oh, these impatient people, they're not sure that, you know, Yahweh's dragging his feet, so we're going to go. We want to, we want another God. So we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna call Aaron and we're just gonna we're gonna start worshiping another God. Um, but is that what's happening here? We need to we need to see and find out. Yeah, there's there's well there's a lot of spiritual stuff that's going on right. in these phrases, yeah. right? I mean, we've already talked about the angel of the Lord that's got the name in him that's gonna lead mm-hmm. lead the people, and then. Um, we're not supposed to worship these other gods, and yet are other gods even a real thing? <laughs> you know, I mean, or is it, is it just man? Is it made, made up religion? A figment of, of these, yeah. you know. So they just want to worship something, and then there's the whole aspect of God. Is he is God himself the true God? Worried about these fake imitation gods, or you know, and the aspect of the the Canaanites in the land, right? That are serving these false gods. Right. What's what's that all about? And yeah. what and what's going to happen as we as we move Israel into that land? But you're saying here is that the people who are waiting for Moses, who is up there getting instructions from God, there's an aspect here that's different than what you're thinking. They're I mean, to me, it does sound like they're being impatient. Yeah. Right. But 
make us gods who will go before us. So are they just are they just going back to their old ways from 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 Egypt or or what's Could going be, on? Could be, yeah. Well, another here's an interesting thing, and and I don't know, you know, some of my translations don't have a footnote here, but it's interesting when it says "Come make for us gods," and and I. I just have two translations open here. One's the Lexham English Bible, which tends to be more literal at times um, than the English Standard Version. They both say, make for us gods. I don't know if you have any other translations. Well, it could be singular. It could be. It's just the word Elohim. And there are times Elohim is translated as God, right? Right. And so why the translators are, are, are translating as make for us gods is interesting to think about. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, you know. So I'm, I'm not going to go into that. But it's it. But it could just be translated. Make for us. Maybe it's because there's no article, you know, like a god there. But I don't know. Um, yeah, I wonder if some of the other language there would um, refer to it like who will go if that's in the plural of, right. of that in the, in the Hebrew form. Um, but anyways, yeah. So your point is, it does. Mine has the note. So scholars, okay. scholars are saying. That it's potentially could be singular. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, I think it's important for us because what's interesting is what they do is they make one idol. They don't make multiple. Right. They only make one. They make a golden calf. Right. Right. And so let's go on. Aaron said, take off your rings. And 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 they do so. He took them from their hand. He shapes it with a tool. He casts an image of a bull calf. And they said, these are your gods, Israel. Or it could be. It, you know, that's the thing. It's it's the these here is plural, and so maybe that's that's where they're getting that. Oh, so that one actually does have the pearl, well, plural. Well, the the the, uh, the pronoun here in verse four is these, right? And so that's probably where their translation is making it plural. Um, but I, I don't know. It, yeah. It's just interesting. Yeah, there's um, there's a little, there's a lot to that to that word in the Hebrew. It looks like it, right. It's these are those. It could also be who, right? So yeah, so maybe yeah. All right, but anyway, so onward. Yeah, you, uh, uh, who who brought? You, but it's interesting here. Who brought you up from the land of Egypt? And now they already know it's Yahweh who brought them from the land of Egypt. Okay, so um, and then in verse five he says. They, he, Aaron built an altar, and he said, a feast for Yahweh yeah. tomorrow, right? A feast for the Lord tomorrow, when that is Yahweh. Right. You know, so so they're having a feast unto Yahweh, and so it it reads to me like they're making this golden calf, not as another god, but as— Another Moses. <laughs> well, well, we'll get there, but first it would just be as, a, as an image, an idol— a repre- a, an image to represent Yahweh, right? Which, of course, is breaking the second command. They're not supposed to do that. Right. And we've talked about this before. Part of the reason they, they shouldn't do that, I think there are two reasons. One is you can't do, man can't make an image of God, right? Only God could do that, right? And it, And the second part is he's already done it. Mm. He's made humans to be his likeness. Right, and and so um, so there's a disconnect there that they're supposed to be that. However, and we brought this up last time, and, and you did put it in our show notes of the last podcast of this um, podcast from it's from the um, it on, the script? on script podcast about Moses among the gods. I forget the lady's name now. Amy, 
Um, I didn't go. I didn't go back and listen okay. to it, but I actually found some of this through Heiser. So okay, we, so, we have so a parallel. Dr. Heiser has has the same material. So I'll let you get to that in a minute. But the the point is, is that if Moses, if they see Moses as that representative, and the one who's speaking God's words to them, and he's not coming down, maybe they're saying, "Oh, maybe Moses died up there." Right? Maybe he went up in the cloud. I mean, he went up with the lightning and the thunder and the cloud and the, you know, maybe, maybe he's not coming back, uh, you know? And so, but we need, we need to hear God's words. We need, to, we need this spokesperson. We need this idol. And so, forgetting the fact that they're supposed to be able to be that people, right? As the priests and, and things. But they're, they're like, but, but no, how our understanding of religion has been that, you know, these people make these idols and they fill that role. So let's do that. So they kind of revert maybe back to the Egyptian way or the even the other way that the other nations tried to worship or have access or have God speak to them, which relates to this view that of the ancient Near Eastern religions and how they cast idols right. and so forth. So yeah. do you have any, uh, what, what's Dr. Heiser say about this? Well, the one thing before we get to Heiser is that just in, in looking back to these ancient people, um, really, so now here we are, we're, we're after the time of the flood, right? Yeah. And more specifically, we're after the t- time of the Tower of Babel, right? Right, which describes um, the division of tongues and, and the separatings of the peoples, right? Right. And the aspect that's spoken of in Deuteronomy 32 is that these nations have gods over them right. and I'm, I'm using the word gods because it's spiritual forces over them but then the lord says but israel are his people will be his he's so he's taking them under his but there's there there are there is a spiritual aspect that uh, you know spiritual realm is in providence over particular nations that aren't israel mm-hmm. right and we would call that demonic forces or whatever. And so this ancient Near East mindset yeah. would be to say that their gods of their nations are real beings. They're they're not just this carved image, right? right. There's something behind that that they're building. Like when you look at David, um, you know, King David when he goes out and he's fighting Goliath and stuff like they have a god called Dagon. Right. Well the statue at one point gets broken. Right. You know, as an act of God showing his power over this idol. But the Philistines aren't worried that the statue got broken, right? They can just build another statue. What that is is representing the actual spiritual force behind that, right? So, right. The, so the ancient people didn't believe that their gods were actually images of stone. No, but, but that, that image in some senses maybe could act almost like as a portal, of some kind mm-hmm. or a mouthpiece that it would be, it would, if they made it the right way <laughs> in some senses, then, then God could speak through it. The right. God of, that it represented could speak through it, which actually it just popped in my head and knowing that you come from Catholic background, which to me, the whole idea of, 
you know, that if you do it the proper way, this proper incantation or this proper ceremony, that it opens it up. It reminds me a little bit of what I would view as the improper view of the Lord's Supper, that, you, that basically oh, if, I the, see, yeah. if the priest says all the right words and does all the right things, that it actually becomes the body and blood of Christ. It's, it's like, I wonder how much of that has pagan roots in its ideas. Yeah, well, there's there's <laughs> certainly a lot that can be discussed there, of which would be seven other podcasts. <laughs> so, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, We're but, not going to go down that rabbit no, hole, but it's just interesting no, to think about. No, but you're right. There, there's an aspect of, from from our perspective of maybe a superstition that goes along with right. it. But you know, the Lord warns against these superstitions and trying to communicate and trying to do astrology and, and read the signs of the times. That's not coming from direct revelation from God. And right. the reason is why because there's there's true evilness behind that, right? Yeah. So the ancient people um, that had these idols. It says that they actually believe that these objects were right. inhabited yes. by their gods, right? And so I think that's kind of what, um, if her name is Amy. Um, Bollock, I yeah, think it might be yeah, the name. Where, yeah. where she was going as well, right? So they actually did ceremonies. So they built the idol, and then they had a ceremony. Right. And that ceremony was to do something in particular. Yeah. And this craft, so this craft, what I remember from this craftsman, he there was a whole set of rules on how to actually form the idol, and then as you're forming it, then and especially after there were these ceremonies and, and rituals and words spoken over them that would actually open the mouth of the idol, right, mm-hmm. and 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 let it speak. And it's interesting that if that mindset is in there, is there even some? And she brings up the idea that even when Moses is encountering um, God at the burning bush, and he's God's calling him to go and and be his spokesman to Pharaoh and to get the people free, he it's not that he necessarily has a stutter. You know, we, we often read that as oh he has he's not a good he's not eloquent of speech, you know, and so he he you know he has a stutter of something, he has kind of speech impediment. Mm-hmm. It's that maybe he's, he's he's saying that no, my mouth hasn't been open for this job yet. You know, that I I need you to I need you to do something in me so that I can you know, represent you right. in that way. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, it's interesting to think about. You know, it's right. not part of why we're doing this, but no, but, but but it does speak to that mindset of why they might be making the golden calf. Right. And why that they're claiming that this is a feast unto Yahweh, you know, yeah. when they have a golden calf in front of them. Right. Now before you go into that segment, I think it's important um that that where you're gonna go. But what I wanna um help the listener with right now is that I'm sure that if you're in my shoes from a year ago, you're thinking, okay, these guys have just jumped off the wagon <laughs> from reality because, you know, we're not going to deal with superstitions and stuff, but the spiritual realm is talked about often in the new Testament as well. Yes. You know? And so there's this thing that, um, was going on at the church in Corinth that that Paul had to address if, whether or not it was okay to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. Right. And so I want to read this so you can see from the Apostle Paul's own lips, you know, this is um, inspired of the Holy Spirit. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verses 18 through 22, it says this. It says, Observe Israel after the flesh, are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything or what is offered to idols or anything? He's like, no, that's not. it's not that the idol is anything. Rather that the things with the Gentile sacrifice, they sacrifice to 
demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. Oh, wow. Right. You know, in verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we any stronger than he? So here it is. Yeah. This is the division. True God right. versus false God. Yeah. And these entities of false gods are real spiritual beings called demons here by Paul. Right. Right. And so this reality is difficult for, I think, us. I think even, you know, we know that it exists, but even we don't really experience this too often, you right. know? And so it's hard to understand, but we have to trust the word of God being consistent and and the deeper, darker aspect of all of these spiritual realm right. courses, right? Yeah. So the Right. That, that's why I say all the time, I, have probably, I think I've said on this podcast before, I know I've said it in some of the classes I teach, I probably said it several times here, is that I need to let the word of God shape my worldview and not Scooby-Doo, right? That... Uh, for a long time, Scooby Doo shaped my worldview that you could, you know, anything that was a ghost or a, you know, some kind of thing that they were, they could pull the mask off or turn off the projector and they would, you know, at the end of the show, Daphne, Fred, and Velma would show that these things aren't real. Yeah. In fact, it's quite the opposite because at the end of that show is when they pulled the mask off, right? right? At the end of this show, at the end of the age, the mask is coming off, but it's going to be the mask of our physical flesh and we're going to see the spiritual stuff behind it. Yeah. Right. All of this. Right. That's amazing. Right. But it's 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 truth and it's reality. And so um that's why we're doing this this podcast, right? So we're we're talking about things that are important and how this is being shaped in Israel now. So now that we know that this demonic world is real and that right. these idols have um real entities behind them. Right. Now now take us to where right. you're going in this. And 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 again in this it's not just that they're real, but there's also this mindset of how to have access to this realm, mm-hmm. right? And what Yahweh is showing is, no, this is false. Why are these gods false? Because their worship is false in the sense that it's not truly unto the one who made all things and the one who is the one true God over all the small g gods. All the, these demons and these demonic powers and that he's even, that they don't exist without God. Right, so you're going to the wrong source of power mm. for one thing, and you're you're following a false way of worship, a a, a way to access the, the spiritual realm that you shouldn't be accessing because you were made to be in my image, and and I'm granting you as my people, as Jacob, who's my allotment, as my inheritance, who I've entered into covenant with. I'm granting you access. Right, right. You don't have to do these other things. You're not. You're commanded not to do these other things, and yet. They are doing them right. right here in the midst of while Moses is up there. So in verse seven, Yahweh speaks to Moses. I'm sorry, what chapter are we in? We're back in Exodus 32. Okay, so 32. Uh, he says, Yahweh spoke to Moses. He says, "Go down because your people have behaved corruptly, whom you brought up from the land of Egypt. They have turned aside quickly from the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves a cast image bull calf, and they bowed to it." And they sacrificed to it, and they said, "These are your gods, Israel, who you brought up from the land of Egypt." Who who, who brought you up? Who brought you up from the land of yeah. Egypt? Right. You know, just this mindset that is there, and so Yahweh says, to "Moses, I've seen these people. Indeed, they are stiff-necked people. And now leave me alone, so that my anger may blaze against them, and let me destroy them, and I will make you into a great nation." <laughs> so the. 
he's basically saying, I'm going to, I'm going to start all over. Just like I started with Abraham, I'm going to get rid of everybody. I'm going to start over with you. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so this is pretty serious um, yeah. sin they've committed here. Yeah. So now, okay. So now the, the path to destruction is paved with good intentions. Okay. Right. That's what's happening. The, do they not, they're, they're building this idol potentially as what hypothetically saying here yeah. to hear from Yahweh. Right. I mean, it's. I mean, they call him Yahweh. It, yeah. The, the no. Idol. Yeah. It, it's. I'm, I'm. I'm struggling with the whole good intentions. I mean, there. In one sense, there is that intention. They want that. It's. They think it's a good intention, but we're. But it's not. Sure. You know, right. they want to, but yet they're also. They're trusting in their former ways. It would be. You know, I think about, we've talked to here about the old man and the new man here. And here we have the account, God is creating the new man. This is the new Adam, the new nation, the new, you know, and, and they're, and they, but what they're doing is they're walking in their old ways. Right. You know, and so uh, maybe because they think that that's how they access God, but he's, he's giving them a whole different way and they're not waiting for him. And so in one sense, if we, if we take this back to the, to the parallel of the garden, Okay, what what's happening here is instead of waiting on the tree of life, they're saying, "Oh, we're going to pursue wisdom. We we want wisdom. We want to hear from God, but we're going to eat from this other tree. Yeah, different, this tree we're not we're commanded not to eat right. from." And they're listening to a different mouthpiece. Yes, yeah. right. And even like in Abraham and Sarah, they come up with a new plan and produce through Hagar. Yeah, right. Hagar, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah so. so again, these this this narrative typology, these parallel stories that right. we have going on here, and so what we see here is this: this is the fall account of the second Adam, you know, uh, the corporate Adam in that sense. Who, who again, we've talked about how God calls them my son, Israel, my son, collectively, right? Uh, in this way. So um, Moses, though, in verse eleven says, you know, why should your anger blaze against your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt with great power and strong hand? Why should the Egyptians say, uh, with an evil intent, he brought them to kill them on the mountain and wipe them over the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger and relent concerning the disaster of your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself. Uh, interesting here that Jacob is called Israel. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Notice that? Yep, I sure did. <laughs> um, that you told them, I'll multiply your offspring in the altars of heavens and all this land that I promised I will give to your offspring, and they will inherit it forever. So this is, again, looking forward to the land promise, looking forward to the whole reason he brings them out of Egypt. Here, at this stage, they're at Sinai, and just a little preview here, at, at in, in chapter 33, when some of this is starting to get resolved, there's the command to, to, to leave Sinai. Okay, and so this is a very important transition point, right? And he even promised, we read back in 23, you know, this, that he's going to take them into the land, right? right? So the whole purpose of all this is to get them to the land. He redeemed them out of Egypt to take them into the land where he could dwell with them and they could worship him freely, not under Pharaoh's thumb. So Moses, now do you think Yahweh doesn't remember this? Well, I was almost going to ask the (laughs) same question, you know, it— there's an aspect here that this is written very much for the for the reader for the for the people yeah. right because god we already know right. doesn't change his mind 
in the big picture, his sovereign plan is a sovereign plan. So he's he's making a statement here to demonstrate a, a certain aspect of it. Yeah, he's 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 showing his anger towards them, but he's also allowing or giving the opportunity for Moses to fulfill the role of a mediator. Mm-hmm. Right? He's that that Moses is, point, yeah. is here now interceding on behalf of the people, and so again, here we have a type of Jesus in some way, right? We have a, a that he's he's coming and and he's interceding um, for the people, and and what and what he's doing, and how is he doing it? What is Moses' argument? Who is who is he arguing for in all of this? He was arguing for the promise that Yahweh had already made. Yes, but. Who whose character is he concerned about? I, again, I say Yahweh. Yahweh's yeah. that exactly. Yeah, yeah. He's he's he it's your name that's on the line here. Right, right. He, it's your reputation. Yeah. It's your honor. It's your glory. Right, and 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 it's very interesting that 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 is in in essence again we in this whole narrative and the way it, it's being told is God is allowing Moses to do. What Aaron and the people didn't do, right? Mm-hmm. He's so Moses is acting as the as as the proper representative here, because uh, what's the third commandment to bear witness to to carry the name of Yahweh? Right? We talked about that before. That you know you you don't have any other gods. You don't make idols because you're you're the be the image, and as the one who carries the name, you're to not carry it in vain. Right. right, and now Moses is basically he's carrying it the way it should. He's like, I we want to carry it. We know we're not carrying it the way we should. But if if you destroy us, then your name is it's going to look bad to the nations, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and we want it to look good. And and what God is doing is is allowing through this to show that He, this same God who burns with anger, who's righteous and just and doesn't put up with sin, is also compassionate and merciful. Right, so we see that later when when Moses asked to see the glory of God and he speaks his name to him in the in the cleft of the rock, we see that he is compassionate and his compassion, his mercy extends to greater generations than than his mm. his judgment of sin yeah, does. That's right, good. that's good. Yeah, and so so we see that all being set up here, and, and Moses is is playing that role, and so when he comes down, uh, we have. The people are described as running wild because Aaron allowed them to run wild for a laughing stock among their enemies. <laughs> and so, in one sense, what Aaron Aaron is portrayed is who's a priest, right? Who's the son? Who's the brother of of Moses and to be the priest? And what's the job of the priest? To keep and to gu- protect, right? To guard and protect. And but what's he doing? He's letting them run wild. Yeah. Right, and in some senses, um, it's it's like what Adam failed to do with Eve, right? When she came and offered, you know, he his his job to guard and protect, right. and he doesn't. He yeah. goes along with he goes along with her, and in some ways, here's Aaron, and he's going along and letting them run he's, wild. He's, he's listening to the people. He fell to the pressure. Yeah, and there and there are some people, uh, theologians. I think that Salhammer would say that there's a. a a, a wordplay going on here between the running wild of the people here and the nakedness 
of of the garden. Okay. And so I just I just read that. I don't we don't I won't take time for that, but is there is there another parallel going on here? We just see that they're they're obviously Well, it's a demonstration of chaos. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And so um so Moses stood at the entrance of the camp in twenty six and said, Who is who is for Yahweh to me? Uh, all the sons of Levi, Levi were gathered to him. Now it's very interesting that at this point, I don't think the Levi, the Levites, have been designated the priestly tribe yet. Um, I think that happens in Numbers chapter three, if I remember correctly. We need to verify that, but it's but it's interesting that there was some instruction, and I'm not sure, but when. You know, when the instructions come to the building of the tabernacle, there was people put in charge of all of that. Okay. And so, um, I didn't. I did. I. I'll, I'll maybe that we can we can review that and um and and verify that yeah. in, in the next show. But I'm pretty sure that the building of the tabernacle and who's going to take care of those emblems and and also, but in the numbers aspect, talks about how they're going to encamp. Right, and so that's that's part of it, but yeah. maybe not. Well, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll we need to go back and look at those little instructions in Exodus and see if 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 it's the Levites are specified okay. there. I'm not recalling. I do know that in Numbers three, after um, uh, Aaron's sons mess up, right, that then he designates the Levites to serve with Aaron. I think so. Anyway, okay. um, just it's, but it's interesting here. It's the Levites who come and and. Join Moses and kill the three thousand. <laughs> um, and then verse thirty, twenty nine. And Moses said, "You are ordained today for Yahweh, because each has been against his son and his brethren in bringing on your today your blessing." So that's what also made me think about it. It's like it's like here he's ordaining them now unto like separating them out unto service to Yahweh as a result of what they did. Um, to come to come to his aid and, and help him in this. Yeah. Um, and in verse 30, the next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin and, and now I'll go up to Yahweh and perhaps I can make an atonement for your sin. Really? Wow. Right. <laughs> very, very interesting. That's, Again. So we got that, somebody coming in to. Yeah. Pointing ahead, you know. Right. I just did a quick look up, by the way. Um, the Levites, it doesn't seem like that takes place until Exodus 38. Ah. So, so we're, we're, you were right. It's, okay. a, it's after this account. It's after this. Yeah. Okay. So um, Moses goes up and he gets, the, he gets the scroll, he gets the tablets again, and he was able to, um, he goes up and, and, and Yahweh speaks to him again. Okay. So what's interesting to ask is what happens after this? Okay. So Moses is interceding. He's calling God. You know, he's concerned about his glory and his name. And so what are the after effects? Okay. Is Moses successful? You know, is are things restored? That's kind of where we are. And I think we'll pick up maybe next uh, podcast the outflow of this is, okay. yeah, the, the, the impact. But before we do that, I just want to, um, again, go back to the beginning and, and why we're doing this whole podcast to begin with. What is this saying about the people of God? Um, what is this? Is is Israel, you know, the corporate Adam kind of thing? If if this is an account of their fall, and and God um, and Moses, they have a, a mediator in Moses, you know, who's who's going to help reestablish them, and he's going to make atonement and and so forth. What does this say about this particular people who we know, as I said, from here they're going to leave Sinai and go to the land. 
you know, because that's that's God's promise. God's God's a, a keeper of promises, and yet he's he has to keep his promises with the people who do stuff like this. He does, but it's not without um, some judgments mm-hmm. and. The way God keeps his promises is through a remnant, mm-hmm. you know, because the people are going to be disobedient and the only people that are going to truly enter the land are going to be 20 years and younger that, at the time of that judgment for their disobedience. Right. You know, so there's, there is a judgment in a physical sense, a relationship sense, not necessarily a salvific sense per se. Yeah. That necessarily right? have to be salvific. Because right? Moses didn't enter in and we would say he was prophet, he's man of God. Yeah. Um, but- you know, it's kind of weird. It makes you think about, you know, the decisions that we make in this life um, as believers, as living in covenant with God, they can have some real effects um, on our life while we're here, mm-hmm. right? And that can actually change um, the way that our witnesses to other people around us. I think of maybe a pastor who um, commits adultery and loses his position in, in the church, right? Well, that's a bad thing. And now he's he's lost his witness, Right, maybe right. not, maybe not a salvation or something like that. But there's right. there's some real aspects of there are. Of, of judgments, temporary judgments, um, and then perhaps f- for those who turn their back, to, you know, fully on the Lord, that right. that, that apostate type thing. So, um, but again, just to go back to what you were saying, we're people who tend to to stray. We're sinful, and if left to ourselves, we will stray. And it takes God of mercy and a man that he calls to be a mediator right to to keep that relationship that goes in between so there's there's something between god and man that that right. has to take place right 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 and this this god who's called the people for himself out of abraham isaac and jacob jacob the deceiver who who's renamed israel who wrestles with god right and there's this whole striving with and we mm-hmm. see the striving happening again here, the the striving of the people and God with the people, God, you know, supposedly threatening to, you know, just get rid of them all and, and all of this stuff. I mean, re- he really is. I mean, in, in, the, in one sense, he knows he's not going to, but he's he's speaking, he's he's demonstrating this striving that is there with the people. And but ultimately he uh is he's he's gonna keep his word, but he's gonna keep it on his terms. Mm-hmm. Right, right, um, and I think that's very important that we and we need to to continue to wrestle with the story and let the story help us see these terms and these things that are pointing, you know, to how he ultimately is doing this as Jesus, and and so I think we'll get some more clues about that next time as we look at Exodus thirty three and following in terms of how. Um, God is is going to go into the land with him and what Moses does, some of the implications. What are some of the implications of this and what does it say about about God and dwelling with his people? That sounds great. Okay. All right. Well, see you next time. Be sure to join us next time as we see God's covenantal purposes during Israel's time in the wilderness. Planet is a Cornerstone EPC production, connecting to God, one another, and the world through the love of Jesus. More information can be found at cornerstonebrighton.com.